three. There we are. Thank you guys for being here. Well, we are a Christ-centered family uh, that glorifies God. I almost forgot it, <laughs> as if I haven't said it enough. We are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are. That's what we do, and that's how we do it. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here at Be Free, uh, and it's my joy, a joy, one of the great joys of my life to be able to be here uh, with you uh, a pastor of this church, also one of the greatest joys of my life to be able to open the Word of God with you every single week. The Word of God, as I say so often, it's, it's the Word of God. And if, that, if it actually is, then let's labor and long, let's work and let's want to understand what it says so that we can believe what it says, delight in the God that it reveals to us as we obey Him and live for Him. So open up your Bibles. We're in Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 43. That's where we are today. We are on Paul's first missionary journey still. At this point, we saw last week that Paul and Barnabas journeyed from the city of Antioch uh, on the mainland across over to Cyprus, and there they eventually landed in the town of Paphos in the west coast of the island of Cyprus. We saw last week that the Holy Spirit selected, sent, and supplied Paul and Barnabas on this mission, and now on today, today we're going to see this mission continue north from Cyprus to the mainland from the city of Paphos to the city of Antioch in Pisidia. Same name, different city, different location. And that's where we are today. Uh, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul is somebody that we talk about a lot because the Apostle Paul is one of the main writers of the New Testament. He's somebody that we interact with a lot when we read the Word of God. Uh, just last week, uh, Saul started going by the name Paul, and so that keeps my mind a lot straighter as I'm talking about him. Um, always having to remind myself not to call him Paul yet. Now I can call him Paul. Uh, but Paul, in this passage, for the first time in the Bible, we're going to get to hear him speak as the great preacher that he is. It's not the first time he's preached. We know that from his entire life he's been immersed in the Word of God. He knows the Old Testament better than you. That's one of the things we have to remember about the Apostle Paul. He knows the, he knows the Old Testament better than me. When we uh, hear Paul here, we're not hearing his first sermon. We're just hearing his first recorded sermon. We know that as soon as he believed the gospel, in chapter 7, he started preaching in the city of Damascus. And then we see that he went to Jerusalem, where he started debating with the Hellenists and debating with the Jews. We also see after that, he went up to uh, Tarsus, where he was from, and he preached for years until, some people say eight years, before coming down to Antioch, where he preached for another full year with Barnabas. In other words, Paul knows the Old Testament well, he knows the Jewish scriptures, and he has, at this point, come to become quite a proficient preacher. Preacher, not just of the Old Testament, but how Jesus fulfills everything that the Old Testament points towards. And so when we come to this passage, though it's the first time we hear Paul, what we're hearing is a masterful explanation of how the entire Old Testament points forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But we're hearing it as a Jewish audience, because that's who he's talking to here. And we'll see that in just a minute. A robust presentation of the story of Jesus, beautifully set in the story of the scriptures. So that's where we're going. It's going to help us see how the Bible is, in fact, not a collection of multiple stories, but ultimately one story pointing to Jesus. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive right in. Acts chapter 13, verse 13 through 15. Heavenly Father, we give you this time. I have hopes 
of uh, what you'll do with this passage in us today. <laughs> but God, you might have different plans. Uh, Father, I pray that as I present your word today, Father, that I would present it faithfully and clearly, uh, God, God, humbly, that I, that I would preach with the power of your spirit working through me. God, I'm dependent upon you for that. But I also pray, Lord, that your spirit would be active in our ears as, as we hear this word. I'm dependent to preach it, Lord. The people here who are hearing your word are dependent upon your spirit to help us be humble and have our ears open to receive it, that it would change the way we worship, change the way we view you. Help us live faithfully to you, Lord. We need you for all of this. And so, God, do your work today. Do whatever you want, even if it's not what we expect. And send us out more in love with you in the process. God, we, we pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. All right, Acts 13, 13 through 15. Let me read it for us. It'll be up here on the screen. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. That's the region. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Okay. Let me put the map up here on the screen because, again, we all don't know necessarily where these ancient cities are. Paphos, where we ended last week, is on the west coast of the island of Cyprus. They sailed north to the port town of Perga, uh, from which they traveled north to another town named Antioch, this one in the region of Pisidia. We might call it Pisidian Antioch. That might come out of my mouth a couple times today. But that's where we are. Next week, they'll be going on to Iconium. And when they come to Pisidian Antioch, when they're there in the city, they do the thing that they've been doing as they've been going on their journey already. They go from town to town visiting the synagogues. And that makes sense. Because Paul is a respected, well-known person in the Jewish community, at least for those that don't yet know that he's changed teams. Um, and uh, Barnabas also is a well-respected person in the Jewish community. We know this because it says when we met him all the way back in chapter 4 that he was a Levite, which means that he was in the line of priests of Israel. And so we don't know exactly why they decided to invite them to come and be a part of this synagogue service, uh, but for some reason they did. They said, hey, Paul and Barnabas, you want to share? And Paul said, yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you so much for asking. And so for the time together today, we're going to hear what Paul stands to speak to this crowd. He's about to tell the story of Israel. He's about to tell them their story. But Paul knows the fuller picture of what's happening in the story of Israel, doesn't he? Let me tell the story of Israel starting in verse 16 and going all the way through 22. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Okay, he's about to tell them a story, their story. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during the, their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that. <laughs> and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them the judges until Samuel the prophet. And they asked for a king. 
And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Let's pause there. This is the story of the Old Testament uh, from, from the point of his choosing of Abraham about Genesis 15 all the way through David in the book of 2 Samuel. Um, well, first and Second Samuel, uh, what, what he's doing is he's recounting the story, but when we think about exactly what he says here, he's not just recounting the story of what the people of Israel have done, is he? He's recounting the story of what God has done. Did you hear the language that he was using continually throughout this entire passage? If you have it in front of you, look at it. Uh, but this is what what we read. Verse 17, he chose them. He made them great in Egypt. He led them out of Egypt. Verse 18, he put up with them in the wilderness, showing his mercy. Verse 19, destroying the seven nations. Uh, He gave them the land. Verse 20, he gave them the judges. Verse 21, he gave them King Saul. Verse 22, he raised up David. Who is working here? (laughs) It's not the people of Israel. It's the God of Israel. And that's important to see. Because when we think about the God of the Old Testament, there is no separate God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The God of the Bible is the God of the Bible, no matter where you open up to. And the cool thing when we look at this passage and we see God give and give and give is we recognize, first of all, that the story of the Bible is God's story. It's about who he is and what he has done. But secondly, it shows us that the story of the Bible is a story of God's grace. Old and New Testament. It's a story of what God does for people who do not deserve it, (laughs) who have done nothing to earn it. Even just seeing that God is the one doing this, freely doing this for people who have done nothing to earn it, reminds us that that is who He is. That's His nature. That's His character. It will not change. And it's not a coincidence for us that by the time we get to the end of this short OT recap, that Um, Old Testament recap that uh, Paul decides to end with King David. King David is not the end of the Old Testament, but he stops there. Why? He stops there because King David isn't just one of the long list of dead kings in the history of Israel. He stops there because David is a king with a promise. God made a promise to David. Let me read you that promise. 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 13. And I will say, if, if the slides get messed up today, it's entirely my fault. Um, I, I didn't give very clear slides to our faithful helpers in the back. It's all my fault. Okay. 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. Oh, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall, uh, sorry, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the promise that God gave to David. A descendant would come who would take the throne and who would never leave it. (laughs) He would reign forever. And the Jews, the people of Israel throughout the centuries have waited for this king. They've longed for the king, the descendant of David, who would come to set up this kingdom. Uh, They called him the anointed one. In Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah. In Greek, Christos, Christ. They were waiting for this one who would come. And they were waiting. (laughs) And they were waiting. Waiting for this promise, this promise to be fulfilled. And now, here's what Paul's saying in verse 23. 
It's amazing. Listen closely. Of this man, David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. The promise has been fulfilled, guys. That's what Paul is saying to these Jews in Pisidian Antioch. He's saying, guys, you've been looking for the king. You've been waiting for this descendant of David to come as he promised. Guess what? He came. He has a name. His name is Jesus. He came to save. And while so many prophets pointed forward to Jesus, what what Paul does at this point is really interesting. He he takes a running start and he vaults over about a thousand years of Jewish history and he lands at the very last prophet, uh, John the Baptist. And this is what he says about him in verse 24 through 27, I'm sorry, 24 through 27, he says, before his coming, before Jesus' coming, John, John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Let me pause there. I'm sorry, this is off the cuff, but let me explain what that means. That's, that's confusing. Um, the Messiah was going to come to turn the nation back to the Lord, to bring the kingdom of God, right? And so the, John the Baptist, he comes preaching a baptism of repentance, meaning he is coming before the Messiah, saying, come, uh, turn back to the way of the Lord. Live in line with the way that God wants you to live. So when the the Jewish leaders heard him doing that, they saw him doing it, and they were thinking to himself, wait a second, is, is this the Messiah? Is this the guy that we've been waiting for? But this is what John the Baptist says, uh, uh, verse 25. And as John the Baptist was finishing his course, his life, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. (laughs) This is Paul again now. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So the Jews come to John the Baptist and say, hey, you look quite a bit like this Messiah we've been waiting for. Are you the Christ? To which John says very clearly in John 1 and also here, I am not the Christ, but he is coming. (laughs) And he points out the Christ when he does come. John, like so many of the other prophets, points out Jesus. But then when Jesus comes, they don't just miss him, they murder him. They think that they've heard these prophecies their entire lives. They believe that they've heard them unpacked in the, in the synagogues for year after year after years. But even when Jesus comes, they don't recognize him. They don't understand those prophecies. In fact, what they do is they make the mistake that the prophets said they were going to make. They led him like a, sleep, like a sheep to the slaughter, killing the king they had been waiting for. I think about like a kid on, uh, who, who waits all year for Christmas morning. I know for me, I, the worst day of the year was the day after Christmas because I had a whole day, year to, <laughs> whole year to wait for Christmas morning. Um, and then I couldn't sleep the night before and all excited for the gifts I was going to get in the morning. But think about that kid who spent his whole year longing for Christmas presents. And he, he wakes up early in the morning before his parents 
rushes downstairs, sees presents under the tree laid out across the room, and he says to himself, who left this mess? <laughs> and then cleans everything up, throws it all away, and says, I guess I'm not getting any presents this year. That's what the Jews did. They've been waiting their entire history for this king. They've been longing for him, just counting down the days. God, when are you going to send this deliverer, this king, this guy from the line of David who's going to make everything right? And then he comes, and they think, that's not him. Jesus didn't meet their expectations, so they missed him, and they murdered him. And so that's where we're at so far. To recap the sermon to this point, the God of grace who gave and gave and gave and gave to his people finally gave that king, the one they've been waiting for, the Messiah, and they killed him. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Verse 30, join me there. But God raised him from the dead. Our entire faith falls on those two words. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Okay, in other words, he appeared to us so that we could be, bear witness to you. And we bring you the good news that what God had promised to the fathers... This he fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. All right. This king he sent, you killed, he raised. Now, by the grace and power of God, he reigns victorious, and his people are sharing that good news. This is, I don't, I don't know who is here this morning, or where we're all at when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ, um, or even what we think about church, what we think about God, what we think about uh, Christianity. All of us might be in slightly different places. Um, some of us might be here just thinking, man, I feel like I need to go back to church, um, and, and so I'm going to check this one out. Some of us might have been here from the founding of this church for 15 years. Some of us might have not be able to remember a time when we didn't hear the gospel. Some of us might be able to hardly articulate what the gospel is. We're all in different places. But no matter who you are or where you are in your faith, it comes down to the message that Paul is declaring here. You might be unsure about whether Christians are hypocrites or not. You might be unsure whether the, the Bible is, is, is true, if it's faithful, if it's reliable. Okay, good questions to ask. But before you go down, down these different roads, ask yourself this. Is Paul telling the truth? Is this story of Jesus, that he's actually the promised king, that he's actually the one who came and died and rose again, is that true? I want to encourage you to ask every question, to follow down every rabbit trail you have about the Christian faith, but do not start those journeys until you start answering this foundational question. Is what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ true? Because I would like to encourage you that if it's not, don't come back, but if it is, keep searching. I think it is. I believe that it is. And if you believe it too, I want to ask you and encourage you and invite you to walk this journey with us as we seek to come to know him more and figure out what it looks like to follow him. This last little chunk of the sermon, though, um, it gets a little confusing. Um, we're not going to spend all the time that we could in this last little chunk. He starts quoting other passages from around Scripture. Let me take it and boil it down for us as we walk through it 
pretty quickly because I, I want to remind you, he's talking to Jews here. He's talking to people who knew their Bibles pretty well. This is what he says, starting in verse 33. As also it is written in the second Psalm, Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. He's quoting Isaiah 55. Therefore, he says again in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Isaiah, sorry, that's uh, Psalm 16. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. A little confusing. I'll boil it down. He's quoting a couple passages here. And in every passage, what he's doing is he's taking a passage that's either about David, written to David, and connecting it with Jesus Christ. Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What he's doing is he's applying to Jesus the language that God himself uses to speak of the special relationship he has with King David. He quotes Isaiah 55, Psalm 16, noting that while David's life ended, Jesus' life did not end. He rose again. Noting also for us that while David's reign ended, the reign of Jesus will not end. In each of these passages, Paul is taking these passages from the Old Testament that in some way, different ways, connect us to David and saying, they don't just connect us to David, they point us to Jesus. And finally, at the end, he concludes all of, us, all of this with this amazing summary. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed, and everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished astounded and perished. For I am doing a work in your day, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells it to you. That's the end of Paul's sermon. There's a lot there. It's, it's a long sermon. If, there's a lot of Old Testament references that for people like us who did not grow up like the Jews did, just sitting in the Old Testament scriptures, there's a lot here that we have to take time to wrestle with. And that's a little bit hard to understand, but let me boil down the conclusion, the response, the warning at the end as clearly as I can. What Peter, or sorry, what Paul says to these Jews is this, Jesus has done what Moses' law could not do. That's a big thing to say to Jews. Jesus has done what your law cannot do. By faith in Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law, you are set free from upholding the standards that by the law you could have never kept. God gave you standards, this law, and while you never upheld it perfectly and you never could, guess what? Jesus did it. He said it boldly and he warns them in that last verse, quoting the book of Habakkuk, uh, I think chapter 2, he says, basically, don't let the prophets be right about you again. <laughs> the prophets were right about you when you missed, or at least when the Jews in Jerusalem missed the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Don't let them be right about you too. Listen, don't let this pass you by. <laughs> let it be said of you that you believed what had been told to you. 
Not that you would not believe what God was doing, even though it would be told to you. So, O Jews of Antioch, don't make the mistake of the Jews in Jerusalem. Believe. Believe in this Jesus Christ. Believe that he is the one who he said he was. In the story of Jesus here, it is beautifully set in the story of Scripture, showing how he is the fulfillment of everything God promised and everything that the Old Testament pointed forward to. Now, I don't want to make uh, excuses for the Jews, right? We, we, um, we know that the Jews were blind to Jesus when he came. They missed him uh, when he came, and they, they, they killed him. They hung him on the cross. But I do want to, for a minute, just try to put our, ourselves in their minds to have some compassion for uh, what caused them to miss Jesus when he came. They were blinded by their expectations. They had one expectation of what this Messiah was going to look like, and they got something totally different. And so that helps us understand it a little bit. The Old Testament isn't as clear as it could have been to the fact that this Messiah who came was going to be the same one who would die. So they missed it. Their expectations weren't met. And expectations are powerful. All right. We know this to be true. If we have expectations that our day is going to go one way and it goes a different way, it hits us pretty hard. We, we sometimes need to convince ourselves to have lower expectations uh, so that we're not disappointed because it's hard when our expectations go unmet. And it's also really jarring how blind we can be if our expectations aren't met. I have a friend named David. Uh, he, he went to a church with me down in, down in Massachusetts for a little bit, and he had been going to church for 10 years with this with another guy in our church named Jim. And David worked down in Boston. Jim worked up in Nashua. Uh, they, they interacted at church every week. Uh, you know, they knew each other well. But they didn't cross paths during the week very often. But one day, uh, David was waiting for the elevator at his office building down in Boston. And Jim walks into the lobby and walks up to him outside the elevator. And goes, oh, hey, David. David turns and looks at Jim. And he goes, um, hi. <laughs> Completely blind to the fact that he had been going to church with this guy for a decade. Why? He was not expecting to see Jim in that space. His eyes had to be, weren't, it took him a second. Jim had to say, Jim from church for Dave to be like, oh, I am so sorry, man. How are you doing? What are you doing here? What's going on? Because our expectations, if we have certain expectations, they can blind us to seeing something that's right in front of us. And that's what happens with the Jews. Their expectations blind them from Jesus when he comes. Because they expected a Messiah who would boldly lead a political revolution. The Jews expected a Messiah who would oppose the Romans, who would set up an earthly kingdom, who would come triumphantly to save from the oppression of the Roman Empire. But when Jesus came, he didn't come boldly leading a revolution. He came meekly, humbly, gently, lowly. He didn't come to oppose the Romans. Actually, he came to oppose the overly stringent Jewish religion, to push back against the Pharisees, not the Romans. They expected him to come and set up this earthly kingdom, but Jesus came and said to Pilate, my kingdom is in heaven. They expected a Messiah who would come triumphantly to save the oppression, 
from the oppression of the Roman Empire, but rather he came and died, saving from the oppression of the kingdom of darkness. Jesus did not meet their expectations, and they missed him. They missed what was staring him right in the face because they weren't expecting it to look like that. And so Paul says to the church in Antioch, guys, don't make the same mistake that your brothers in Jerusalem made. Believe. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Verse 42 and 43, this is how it closes. And they went out. The people begged, sorry, (laughs) as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The end. Paul spoke. Some listened. Some paid attention. Some actually followed after them. We don't know if they fully believed, because in fact, if we look at the Gospels, we see that a lot of people at the beginning followed Jesus for quite a while, just testing it out, seeing if they liked what he would continue to say, and ended up at the end turning back. But either way, it seems that some people were listening, and we praise God for the fruit that God worked through Paul there in that synagogue. But Paul's great aim in this passage is to speak to the brothers and the sisters in Pisidian Antioch to unpack the scriptures that they know so well and to help them see that the Jews, what the Jews in Jerusalem were unable to see, that they could be blinded to their expectations, but that Jesus was in fact the one the whole Old Testament pointed forward to. The wait was over. The king had come. And so what about us? I mean, you and I, I'll speak for myself, I'm not ethnically Jewish. Uh, I, ha- I don't, to my knowledge, have a drop of Jewish blood in me. Uh, this, this sermon was given to Jews. But for those of us who aren't Jews, we listen to this, we hear this sermon a little bit different. So the question is, how should this sermon spoken to Jewish ears hit our ears? Today in New Hampshire in 2021, most of us not Jews, how should this sermon hit our ears? I think that when we hear this sermon, we hear this presentation of Jesus from a different angle and with different expectations that need to be confronted. Different angle and different expectations that need to be confronted. First of all, I think we come to the story of Jesus Christ from an entirely different angle. Because think about this, for the Jews, they had the history. They had the prophets, and that moving forward through history, they were standing upon their knowledge and their, intimate, their, their acquaintance with the history and the prophets until finally Jesus came. In other words, when they met Jesus, they were meeting him as they were walking forward through history. But for the Gentiles, Gentiles then and for us today, we don't meet Jesus from having this well-established foundation of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the prophets, walking forward until we meet Jesus Christ. No, we meet Jesus. We're confronted with his teachings. We wrestle with what's said about him, what's taught about him, and then we have the task of turning around and looking back and thinking, okay, this Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. Okay, this Jesus is the culmination of all of this history. Well, the Jews look at angle from the past moving forward.